Well, I figured since uh, Joe didn't preach as long as I do, I, I have his time banked. So we'll we'll see if we can use all that up. Anyway, we're going to talk about chosen to fish this morning. I want to start by asking you a question. And a simple question, who are you? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question before. Who am I? We often wrap our identity up in, in different things. Uh, for example, I read that a recent report claimed that nearly 4 million Americans are vegetarians. There are subcategories for vegetarians. I don't know if you knew this as well. So you have vegans who refuse to eat all animal products, including eggs, milk, cheese, yogurt, and ice cream, which to me is insane. I don't know why you would not want to eat ice cream. But anyway, uh, but you also have fruititarians. They eat only fruits, refusing even plant seeds. And so the number of vegans and fruititarians are pretty modest, actually. Um, There is a large yet limited group that eats anything but animal flesh. However, what category holds most of the nation's four million vegetarians? Would you be surprised to learn that over 60% of all vegetarians eat meat? Over 60%. This is right around 1 million pollo vegetarians, meaning they will eat chicken and other birds. There are also around a million pesky vegetarians, meaning they eat fish. And there are also those that are pollo pesky vegetarians, meaning they eat fish and fowl, but no mammals. Mammals, they will eat the occasional reptile and amphibian. So what do we, what do I learn from this? What I learn is that people just want to say they are vegetarians. And it's kind of a farce, like, oh, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. But they're really not a vegetarian. So who are you? What do you, what do, you do if you're a Christian? If you say, well, I'm a Christian, what, what does that mean? What do you do? Where are we going as a church? If you have your Bible, please open it to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament. We will be in chapter 4 in a few minutes, and we will start at verse 18. Let me ask you, what is it that comes to mind when I say the word Christian? Is that something that you consider yourself to be? When I say the word Christian, what is the first thing that you think of? Maybe you're having trouble envisioning this, so let me help you. What if I say Hillary Clinton supporter? What is the first thing that you think of. Don't say it out loud, but what is the first thing you think of? What if I say Trump supporter? What's the first thing you think of? What if I say CrossFitter or multi-level marketing person? What if I say Cubs fan or Cardinals fan? Or how about a NASCAR or Star Wars? Is it the new Star Wars or the old Star Wars? What do you think of? Now that you've been prepared, let me ask again. Christian. What pops into your mind when I say Christian? Maybe it's Billy Graham. 
I don't know. I suspect if we ask 10 random people what pops into their mind when I say Christian, we'd probably get close to 10 different answers. If we went out to the square in Washington and asked random people, are you a Christian? Some people would say yes. Some people might say, what do you mean by that? Some might say yes, but, and some might say no, and some might say no, but, and some might say yes, but I'm not like this sort of Christian. And and there are some of you who would say that there was a time when you became a Christian. There was a point where you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle, you got baptized. And some of you, if I asked you, would say, well, I've always been a Christian, kind of like you were born a Christian or something like that. And still, some of you might say, no, I'm not a Christian. Some of you, when, if, when I ask what comes to mind when I say Christian, maybe you thought of someone that's judgmental or a moralist or whatever it might be. Did you know the first Christians did not call themselves Christians at all? That term was actually given as a derogatory term. That's what Acts chapter 11 tells us. In Acts 11, 26, it's in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians. And it was a derogatory term that meant little Christ. And it would go like this. You all think you're a bunch of little Jesuses walking around. Before they were called Christians, they referred to themselves as disciples. The word Christian is actually only used three times in the entire Bible. The word disciple is used 281 times in the New Testament alone. You might say it's so big deal. It is a big deal because we no longer realize what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying to you is that the word Christian has actually lost its meaning and people that identify as being a Christian who have no intention of following Jesus or who have never followed Jesus their entire life, but they say, well, I'm a Christian. What I am saying is that many people who call themselves Christians are not really disciples. And it's impossible to be a Christian and not be a disciple. The term disciple is very clear. It makes it clear what you become when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 4, we have Jesus choosing the first disciples. And I think in that passage of Scripture, I believe that we see what it means to actually be a Christian. So we're going to take some time to to read Matthew chapter 4 and look at verses 18 through 22. Now, now I've been thinking, um, you know, as I was on vacation, like I like to do, I like to think, and I thought, you know, well, how can I make the Word of God more prevalent at First Baptist Church, more, more respected and more um, influential, I guess? Uh, what can I do? And so what I want us to do, um, and, and we're going to do this every Sunday, is I want us to stand out of respect for the Word of God this morning as we read it. So if you're willing, will you please stand with me, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew 4, 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak and that your servants would hear. May your word penetrate our hearts, penetrate our lives. May we be a changed people today, not because of some great message, not because I I had something powerful to say, but may your word change our lives this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean? Point number one, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Let me ask you something. Have you ever read this passage of Scripture and thought, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense? I mean, we have no background, so, so we read it, and Jesus is walking along the sea, and he sees these guys out fishing, and he says to them, says to these guys, hey guys, follow me, and I'm going to make you fish for people. And they're just like, okay, then we're done doing this, this ordinary fishing thing. We're not going to fish for fish anymore. And they start to follow him, and it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't it seem strange to read that, and that's what they do, that's their response? But if we understand the history, it actually makes a whole lot of sense. So I want to help us understand this a little bit better this morning so we know what it is what is meant to follow Jesus and then we'll explore even more in depth what it means for us. So if you if you're a Hebrew boy during this time, you went to what was called the the Torah school and it was to learn the first 5 books of the Old Testament. And so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy You'd start this at age five, and so they'd bring all these five-year-old boys, and, and they would take them, and they would, they would uh, put a drop of honey on their tongue, and they would, uh, uh, for many of these boys, they were poor, and so this was the first time they'd ever tasted the sweetness of honey, and so they would be flooded with the sweetness of honey, and at the same time, they're having read to them the first five chapters of the book of Genesis, And this was to convey to these little boys, these young boys, the image that the word of God is going to be sweet to them. And for the next five years, they would memorize large sections of the Torah. And by the age of 10, they would go through this weeding out process. And they would only take the very best students. And so the rest that did not make the cut, they would go back to their fathers and they would become apprentices in the family business. Those that remained... And Torah school would study until around the age of 17, where they would learn the rest of what is called, uh, what we call the Old Testament, Joshua through Malachi. And so for the next seven years, that would be their focus. And when they got to 17, there was another cut. And if you wanted to go on with your religious studies after that, well, you had to find a rabbi that you admired, and then they would, they, you would become what they called his Talmud. Rabbi means teacher. Talmud means disciple. Hebrew word for disciple. So are you following me? This is what happened. And so then you would find your rabbi. You would go and sit at your rabbi's feet. That meant you were requesting to learn from the rabbi. And the rabbis would examine you with a series of questions. They put you through a series of tests to see if you're worthy of being their disciple. And so the rabbis could be very selective because during this time, being a religious ruler was the best of possible jobs and nearly every Hebrew boy dreamed of being a religious expert one day 
They didn't have dreams of playing in the NFL or being some famous rock star because they didn't have that back then. They dreamed of being a religious expert. Therefore, the rabbis would only choose the smartest and the most talented boys to be their Talmudim, which is plural for Talmud. We should also make note that they were so picky when choosing a disciple because they were choosing someone that they believed had the capacity to be just like them. And so they were not not just choosing boys so they would know what they knew or hear the teachings that they would teach or or do what they did. And so for several years, these Talmudim would follow around their rabbi and they would imitate their rabbi in every single possible way. And so you know what it's like to imitate someone, right? You see that in little kids all the time. They mock one another, imitate one another. And so they would say, so, so what they would do is they would learn their mannerisms. They would learn how they answered certain types of questions. They would learn how to respond in different situations. Supposedly, the highest compliment you could possibly give to someone, to a Talmud during this time, was to say to them that the dust of your rabbi is all over you. So that's saying that you're just like your rabbi. Today we would say something like this. You're the spitting image of your rabbi. Now during the time of Jesus, there was a rare form of rabbi who possessed a characteristic that the Jewish people called smicca. This means authority. Smicca sounds, it sounds better, sounds cooler than saying authority. It's smicca. So a smicca was a rare rabbi. There's only about a dozen or so that we know of who are recognized with smicca in the first century. They're the most well-known rabbis. The two of the most well-known ones are Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Gamaliel. And these guys were masters of the Torah. They had the spiritual authority about them who, were, who, who they, uh, they could give interpretations of the text. They, they, they were thought to be so close to God that they could give new and unheard of insights into Scripture. And so it was a big deal, especially for Jewish people, because they felt like everything they needed to know, they already knew. But these guys, these rabbis were the smicka. And so they could say to you, no, you didn't understand this right, so let me explain it to you. A few other things real quick. In order to be a rabbi with smicka, You had to have credible evidence that you had done miracles. And if you were regarded as one with smicca, it had to be officially conferred on you by two other rabbis with smicca. So not just anyone could be like in this club. It was exclusive. It was hard to get into. Now back to the point, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So in Matthew chapter 4, here comes Jesus. He knows the Torah, right? He knows the Torah so well that we find him at the age of 12 in the temple correcting religious rulers. So he knows the Torah. When when we read of his teaching, we read that he frequently say things like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He speaks with authority and insight that no one else has. In fact, we see that his followers are continually amazed at his authority. In fact, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, it says that they were amazed because he taught them as one with, in the Hebrew, smicka, or authority. Now, throughout Jesus' career, they were saying things to him like, where did you get your smicka? Where did you get your authority? Who conferred it upon you? 
We must know because you do miracles. In fact, look at Matthew 4, 23, right after the verses we read. It says, And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, right before this account, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He goes out there and he sees John the Baptist. As you know, John the Baptist, camel skin wearing locust honey, eating prophet man that was crazy. Everybody thought this guy's nuts. He's a teacher with smicka, if there ever was any. Now, what does John the Baptist say as Jesus comes? He tells everyone who's listening to him. Now, there is someone, and he points to Jesus who's in the crowd. There's someone there whose shoes I'm not even worthy to unlace. Wow. Nevertheless, Jesus has John baptize him. And what happens at the baptism, a dove descends on Jesus, and God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now listen, if anyone ever had smicka, it was Jesus. If you were there, you would have said, This guy has smicka. Everyone knows it. Now this new rabbi in Matthew, whose name is Jesus, who's oozing smicka, chooses Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John who are fishing and by virtue of the fact that they are fishing we know that they did not make the old rabbi cut they were the left outs they were not the main men they were not on the main team they 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 were not the know-it-alls they were the rejects now stop and think about that for just a moment the team that Jesus chooses to assemble to transform the world is the team that no one else wanted. It's a team of rejects. Jesus passes up the A team. He heads straight to the B team. And so of course they want to follow him. This was every rat, this was every Hebrew boy's dream. They'd, they had missed out on it. So yes, they want to follow this rabbi, this one that has more smicka than anyone else because he chose them. He chose the rejects to follow him, to become like him, to know God like he knows God and to know what he did and to be filled with his power. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that you are following the one with authority. Now secondly, let's look at this. Jesus doesn't choose the best. Jesus chooses the willing. I love what John MacArthur says about this. In choosing his disciples, Jesus skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passes over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, Caesar, the great ruler. He chose men to be his disciples so ordinary it was comical. Not a single rabbi, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half of them were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent, and one of them was a former terrorist. He chose the B team because his work in the world would not come from their abilities, but from him. It would come from what he would do through them. See, people with a lot of talent and ability would only get in the way because they would never really learn to lean into his power. You see, Jesus taught that his power and the weakest 
vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent apart from him. Jesus didn't choose the best, but the willing. He doesn't see things the way the world sees them. In fact, he reinforces this in Matthew chapter 11. He's speaking to his disciples, and, and what does he say? Among those born to women, no one is greater than, who do you think he says? Among those born to women, no one is greater, and he names his favorite preacher. Jesus says no one is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus loved John the Baptist. But look at what he says. No one is greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. That's mind-blowing. Least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Least means that you know the least about the Bible. You have the least talent. You're the least eloquent. You have the least amount of spiritual gifts. You see, this is just a mathematical Probability. There is always a least. There's a least right here in our church. Right now, someone here is the least eloquent. They're the least capable. They know the least about the Bible. And that's just mathematically true. And you may be thinking, well, pastor must be talking about me right now. Maybe I am. Even if I am, whoever you are, you have more potential for the power and the ministry of the kingdom of heaven than John the Baptist, Jesus says. Why? Because you have something that John the Baptist never had. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Listen to me carefully, believer. From the time that you receive Christ as your Savior on, it is no longer about your ability. Because you have none. You have no ability for Jesus. But it is about your availability to Jesus. He didn't choose you because you could be a great dad or a mother or a great preacher or a great witness or a great anything. He chose you to be a willing vessel that he would work through. And the Holy Spirit in the mouth of one single believer is more powerful than an entire army of the most eloquent orators in the world apart from the Spirit of God. We must understand this. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without a fire, we are useless. January 6, 1850, a 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was trudging up Hythe Hill in Colchester on his way to church. When the blizzard prevented him from going further and he turned the corner and made his way into a small primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. He recounted the story hundreds of times, each time just a little bit different. But here's one of the most vivid recollections that Charles Spurgeon had. I sometimes think that I might have been in the darkest and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. And when I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah forty-five twenty-two. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. 
But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began this way. My dear friends, there is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man may not be worthy worth a thousand dollars a year to look anyone can look a child can look but this is what the text says then it says look unto me a said he in broad essex many of you are looking to yourselves no use looking there you'll never find comfort in yourself then the good man followed up his text in this way look unto me i am sweating great drops of blood look unto me i am hanging on the cross look I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. And when he had got about the length, managed to spin out ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look miserable. How would you like the pastor say that to you? Sitting out there, you look miserable. Young man, you look miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck, he continued. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone and the darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, church. That poor man who was not the pastor in that primitive Methodist church listened to the call of the Holy Spirit on that day. And he looked at young Charles Spurgeon in the eyes and he obeyed what he felt the Spirit of God was telling him to say. And he said to young Charles Spurgeon that he should look to Christ and he did and he was saved on that day. And who knows how many other countless people are saved because that one man listened to the Holy Spirit of God. One man's obedience to speak the truth of what the Spirit had told him. The Holy Spirit in the mouth of one available believer is more powerful than the most eloquent army of unbelievers in the entire world. God did not choose you because you were awesome. He wanted to make you awesome because he decided that you were his. Who you are doesn't come from your abilities. It comes from Him. If you're awesome, it comes from His power. The question is not and is never how able are you. The question is how available are you. Are you fully surrendered to Him? Saying, God, I will stop making excuses. I'm going to quit looking at my family and my marriage and my job and my ministry. I'm going to stop asking, what can I do? But God, instead, I'm going to ask, what can Jesus do? Listen, he chose you, and he did not choose the best. He chose the willing. Which leads us to point number three, which is not in your bulletin. It is in your bulletin, but it's not the right one. I missed a point. So number three, he chose us, not we him. 
Remember what I said. That if you were among the best in your class, then you applied to be a rabbi. And if he liked you, that he saw that you were a good person and, and he would choose you back. Now, this would serve as a great source of confidence, right? I mean, if the rabbi chose you, you would be confident. If you, if you had any problems, you say, well, my rabbi chose me. Surely he saw something in me to pick me. It'd be like if you were out shooting baskets and, and Phil Jackson, the former coach of the Bulls, came out there and said, hey, you have some real talent. It wouldn't matter what anyone else said because you could hang your hat on that. You'd be like, well, Phil Jackson told me I had talent. Here's the thing. Jesus does not look at you and go, man, you have some real talent. You see, he goes further back because he chose you when you were not even looking for him. He came and sought after you. That is precisely what he does with the disciples. He came seeking them. They had no idea they could even be his disciples. They're out there fishing. Think of the confidence that must have given them. We see Jesus and the apostles bringing this up all the time, time and time again. He chose us to instill confidence. We can read the book of Ephesians and we can see how Paul develops this this whole theme that you didn't choose God, God chose you. Now in Ephesians, Paul is not saying, hey, I'm going to explain predestination to you so that that, uh, you understand it. What he is saying in Ephesians is that in the middle of the world where we are overwhelmed by opposition, we can have confidence because if God chose you, he will see it through. You see, the size of the obstacle in front of you is absolutely meaningless because all that matters is the size of the God behind you. And our God is greater than any obstacle you face. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So stop worrying about your obstacles and start focusing on God. That is the whole point of him choosing. Now here is the beauty of it. Let me give you the words of Jesus himself to his disciples. This is what he says. Are you ready? You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit. Bearing fruit means that they will win other people to Jesus, and your fruit will last. It's not some temporary thing, but it is permanent, real, eternal fruit, so that whatever you ask in the name of the Father, I will give to you. So when Jesus tells his disciples that he chose them and that they did not choose uh, that they did not choose him. His main point was not to be like, hey guys, I need you to know that I'm a Calvinist. That's not his main point. His main point is saying this, that he chose them and he has a plan and a purpose for them and he will pursue that plan and that purpose in them and he's not going to drop the plan, but that plan will come to fruition. Why? Because it's his plan and he is the sovereign God of the universe. So when you get weak need and you get scared and you lack confidence in yourself and when you think that, that, that you can't do it anymore, then put your confidence in the purpose that he has for your life because, because even if you falter, his purpose will never, ever, ever fail. You see, this is so often where our confidence fails, right? Sometimes we'll talk about how we lost our confidence in Jesus. 
people say that all the time. In fact, in the last month, two prominent Christians have said they are no longer believers. One says, I'm now an atheist. It's not our confidence in Jesus that we lost. It's our confidence that Jesus will do through us what he said he would do. We see examples of this in Scripture. You probably remember one of them well. Disciples are on a boat in the midst of a storm. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. And they're all like freaked out, right? Thinking, oh man, it's a ghost. Jesus identifies himself. And Peter, he's always saying something cool, right? And he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out there. Jesus says, it is I. And he commands Peter, come on out. So Peter steps out of the boat, right? All the other disciples still sitting in the back shaking in their boots. And Peter starts walking on the water. And everything's great. He takes some steps. And then he starts looking at the waves. And remember what he does? He panics. He starts to sink. And we like to say, well, Peter lost his confidence in Jesus. One former Bible teacher said this. Peter lost his confidence in himself. Which is borderline heresy. That's not what happened. He didn't lose confidence in Jesus. Because Jesus is still doing fine on the water. He didn't lose his confidence in Jesus' ability to walk on water. Jesus is still walking on the water. He's lost his confidence in Jesus' ability to make him walk on the water. And there's a huge difference. Our confidence typically falters not in the character of Jesus. Instead, it's in the promise of Jesus to do through you exactly what he said he would do through you. And so, so we will have confidence that if Jesus were married to our spouse, he would be doing an awesome job. But we're not confident of that Jesus can use us to become the kind of husband and the kind of wife that we're supposed to be. We're confident that Jesus, if he was raising our kids, he would do an amazing job. But we're not confident of what he promised. He promised that he would do it through you. You're confident if Jesus worked at your job or your workplace, he would do an awesome job at sharing the gospel with everyone. That's not what he promised. He did promise that he would do it through you. That he would do these things through us when, when your confidence falters and when you fail and when life knocks you down and when your marriage feels like it's on the brink of failure and you have all these insurmountable obstacles in your way with your kids and your family and your career and your ministry. What you need to remember is that he is faithful who called you and he will do exactly as he promised. He began a good work in you and he will see it through. He's not going to let go of his purpose for your life until it's complete. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. What God has purposed, he will bring to pass. Paul says, I know in whom I believe and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. When I am faithless, he is faithful. He can't deny himself. When I am unable, he is able. The Lord says in Isaiah 46, 11, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. When Jesus chose you, he had a plan. He had a plan for your marriage. He had a plan for your family. He had a plan for your kids. He had a plan for your career. He had a plan to use you to bring forth fruit and not one single bit of his plan is dependent on any ability that you bring to the table. It's all dependent on Jesus Christ. 
Christ and His ability to do it through you. And that's what we put our confidence in. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. It's so exciting that wherever you go, whatever you do, God has preordained good works for you to walk in. Don't you understand that our job is not to try to figure out God's plan, but to look to the Lord Jesus to lead you into things that He has already purposed and planned for your life? He said it. He will do it so we can trust Him. i got to move on quickly. Number four, our primary calling is to be with Him. Our primary calling is to be with Him. Jesus said this, simply this, follow me. He did not tell them where they're going or what the assignment was. His call to them is not to do something. It's to become like Him. And to become like Him, you must know Him. And if we want to know Him, we must spend time with Him. And to spend time with Him means that we soak in every word that comes out of His mouth. Let me just say that we offer ways at First Baptist Church for you to take advantage of this. We have weekly messages. We have small group Sunday school. We have Wednesday evening Bible studies. And let me just uh, be up front with you. If you are serious about being a disciple, then you need to be taking advantage of all of those. And I don't mean that you come in and hear me teach once a week. You need to get into the Word daily on your own. We offer these devotional books at the Welcome Center called Table Talk. There should never be any left. We have we, we have read through the scripture in a year plans. You should be memorizing scripture. You should be reading books about the Bible. You should be active in Bible study, listening to sermons and podcasts. You should saturate yourself with the word of God. God's word needs to be inside of you until it dominates all of your thinking and all of your behavior, until you think it, until you talk it, until you quote it. And when life cuts you, you bleed the word of God. That's the way it's supposed to be. You will not know Jesus any more than you know his word. So learn it and be with him. Number five, to follow him, we have to leave all. Now notice it says immediately they left their boat and their father. These two things are highlighted because they represent what is most significant. Their boat was their career. It's what they depended on to take care of themselves and their father who was the most significant relationship they had. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I take precedence over everything. Most of us aren't going to lose our father or mother to follow Jesus. But there are people who will lose their father and mother. There are those who will. There are those who who are threatened to be killed for following Christ by their own family. There are those born right here in America that have come to Christ. Their Muslim parents have disowned them. Most of us will never know what it's like. Most of us won't be asked to leave our job to follow Jesus. However, you will have moments in your life where you will have to make decisions as to what holds greater sway in your life. Maybe God will lead you to go and serve on a mission trip, and someone in your, in your life will tell you, well, you can't do that, and you, or you shouldn't do that, and you will have to decide who holds God's greater sway, God or that person. Maybe you'll be a high school student and you're the only one that follows Jesus out of all your friends. And you'll get labeled the religious person or something crazy. 
And you have to decide if you're going to sit back and give in to the intimidation or if Jesus has larger sway in your life than your friends. Some of you will be tempted to cut corners at your job because everyone else does it. But you'll have to decide if you're going to do things God's way or not. Some of you will have a decision on what to do with your income. Scripture plainly and clearly tells us unequivocally that you give your first and best back to Jesus when you're his followers, which should start at 10%. That's right, I said start. This is where it gets hard, and this is often where many prove they really have no taste for being a disciple of Christ because they refuse to obey God in their finances. Jesus does not have greater sway than their boat or their new car or their finances in general. Their money has greater sway in their life. You see, in order to follow Jesus, it means you subject everything to his lordship. It means that you forsake all all that you have. It means that, that everything that he has forbidden is forbidden in your life. And you pursue all that he has prescribed for you to pursue unconditionally. Last one, and we're done. Number six, he commands us to spiritually reproduce. To be a disciple, you are commanded to reproduce spiritually. In verse 19, Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is going to make them what he is. His followers become fishers of men. It's not something for a select few to do, but it's something that according to Jesus, everyone does. In fact, Jesus says that this is not a part of what you do, then you're not really a disciple. And just so you know, I'm speaking the truth. Let's use some scripture to back it up. John 15, 8. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So how do we prove that we are disciples? By bearing spiritual fruit. You will reproduce spiritually, which means that if you are really his disciple, reproducing spiritually will be part of your life. And if you are not reproducing spiritually, then you should question whether or not you're really a disciple at all. Listen, church, the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven was this. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. There are three words here in the Greek that are participles. Go, baptize, and teach. There's only one verb in the whole sentence, and that is make disciples. Which means if if you're reading it in the Greek, that all these things kind of come from this one thing, which means the center of all the going, the center of all the baptizing, the center of all the teaching is making disciples. So that means that in all we do as a church, that means in all we do as a Christian, the core of everything that we do is this one verb. Make disciples. Everything that we do in ministry should be growing out of our call to make disciples. Behind everything that we do as a church should be to tell people about the salvation that Jesus offers. Listen, the greatest need in all the world is for people to hear about salvation. We can look at the poor and the needy and those who are suffering, but the greatest suffering of all is those who will suffer for everyone, for, for forever, for eternity. And everyone who does not trust in Christ as Savior will suffer forever. As believers, we are to give our lives to relieve the suffering of people who do not know Jesus. 
and all that we do, what controls what we do, must be making disciples. Jesus summarized his ministry in a sentence when he said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if you are here this morning as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, that should summarize your life. That you are here to seek and to save the lost. Josh Monda is here to seek and to save the lost. And if I'm truly a follower of Jesus, if I'm truly his disciple, that is what my life will look like. This is our primary call and it involves every believer. He has pointed each one of us individually. He has called you to bring forth fruit. Robert Coleman, I love what he says in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. He says this. And it's so true. Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Just means telling them, telling other people about Jesus, nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not a program. It's not something. It's not, hey, we need an awesome Easter program, or we got to have some sort of great Christmas party if we're going to really reach the lost, or we got to have this cool children's ministry if we're going to reach the lost, or we got to have a wonderful youth ministry if we're going to really reach the lost, we got to have a great men's group or a great ladies' group. It's not even great sermons from the preacher because it's not something. That's not his plan. His plan is someone. It's you. You are God's method for discipleship. The goal for every Christian is that by God's grace, you become a reproducing Christian. And so I'm asking you to commit to it. Disciple making is simply teaching someone else to follow Jesus like you follow Jesus. And it may mean that you study the Bible together. But more than that, it means that you open your life and you let other people in. What do you need to do? First, get engaged in the church. The best way for you to do that is to get involved in a small group Sunday school. It's time to move from spectator to disciple. So get involved in a small group because that is where you get to know others on a more personal level. If a class feels like it is too big, we'll start another class. So if you're not in one of them, get in one. However, most importantly... Today, I want you to identify your one. Who's your one? I want you to identify one person that will that you will commit to praying to, that you will try to introduce to faith in Jesus Christ. We can't control the outcome, so I'm putting that I'm not putting that on you. But you can be obedient. So I'm saying commit to God and say, God. I show me one person that I'm supposed to reproduce myself in spiritually. We hear about church growth strategies all the time. But the best way to grow a church is for every member to be sharing the gospel. Imagine the impact on our community and the church if each one committed to reach one for Christ. Within a year, we would double in size. Let me close with this. Here's my question for you Are you a disciple? Maybe you never understood it until now. Are you a disciple? Or do you just call yourself Christian? 
Are you committed to following Jesus? Do you really understand who it is that called you? The wind and the waves obey his commands. Demons flee at his voice. Diseases healed by his word. He could speak to people in the grave and they would walk out. By him all things exist. And by his blood we are redeemed. For his glory we were created. And by his purpose all things progress. He has no rival. There is no equal. If Jesus is who he said he is, then he deserves so much more than our casual Christianity or our sporadic church attendance. He deserves total abandonment and utter Adoration, And some of you need to stop calling yourself a Christian and you need to be a disciple. And maybe today you leave everything and you follow him. Let me make the gospel clear to you. The gospel is that you could not save yourself and there is nothing you can do to save yourself. So Jesus came to die the death that you deserve in your place. He offered to save you and he offers that freely to everyone who will receive it. There is one Condition that you become his disciple and you surrender everything to him. It does not matter what kind of prayer you pray or what family you grew up in. The question you must answer today is, am I his disciple? Have you received Jesus? Have you surrendered to Jesus? And now on to part B, are you engaging in the mission? Are you reproducing yourself? Because if you're not, then you're not fully a disciple. The call to follow Jesus and the call to make disciples are one and the same call. We cannot call ourselves disciple or Christian while we sit by and watch our friends and our family go to hell and do nothing about it. You're not a disciple. You're not a Christian. You just like to attend church. Just like those vegetarians. You like the name. There are stages in Jesus' ministry. Stage one, come and see. First recorded question of Jesus in the gospel is John 1. Where are you going, Lord? What does he say? Come and see. That's what many of us are doing. You're coming and seeing. You're learning. But then Jesus shifts about halfway through his ministry to come and die. In John chapter 12. Come and die means fully committed to me. No restrictions. Right towards the end of his ministry, before he ascends into heaven, he changes it one more time. And he said, go and tell. Come and see. Come and die. Go and tell. Some of you are stuck in stage one, and you need to move on. And I'm inviting you to move to stages two and to stages three. Get off the sideline to come and die and then go and tell. Because that is what it means to be a disciple. To identify your one and commit to it and go and tell. Let's pray together. With our eyes bowed and our heads closed, let me ask you this morning. Have you ever become a disciple?